May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In the epistle reading, James uh, presents a um, deeply human um, paradox, um, troubling, uh, intrusive, and ultimately defeating, but still hope-aspiring picture of human identity. <laughs> That's a nice start. <laughs> he, um, he presages a situation in which a person looks at himself in the mirror and um, sees something arresting. But instead of carrying that arresting impression away from the mirror, completely forgets what he saw about himself and just blithely goes on with his life in the old way. But according to James, there's another way of living in which you'd see the truth about yourself in the mirror and you'd go away and having looked into what he calls the perfect law of liberty, whatever that is, you would find yourself a better person. Having seen yourself as you are, instead of forgetting about it, you'd discover that it was the fountain of some kind of improved self. Now, um, this is really a, a vital point in life because most of the time when we see a glimpse of who we actually are or, or what our lives really are stumbling over, we tend to want to sort of forget about it and move on. Um, I happen to think that the television show Thriller from 1960 to 62 with Boris Karloff was one of the high points of American entertainment. And in 1960, one of the fourth episodes, it was a breakthrough episode, in fact it's famous, quote, for those who care, um, but Tony Newman and I care deeply. Um, in this episode um, called The Cheaters, it is a reference to a pair of little spectacles like this, but they are cursed spectacles, and they allow, unfortunately, the person who puts them on, the spectacles, or cheaters as they're called, to see what's really going on in a given situation. And at the very, very end of this hour-long 1960 television show, the hero finds himself putting on the cheaters, which are 400 years old, and what he sees is himself. And he is such a debauched, entirely self-oriented, myopic and deeply destructive person, although he looks purely normal, that you see what he sees, which is monstrous. And he screams and dies. <laughs> now that's called, that's, the, that's the, the true side of seeing yourself in the mirror. I'm talking about the really important thing about you, not the, not the semi-important things but the, the core malfeasances or failures or misfires of your experience. And you've got to have them. I mean, everybody grew up, right? You, you have to have somewhere something in your life that is defeating because it's never been gotten rid of. So poor Harry Towns, who's the actor, dies when he sees himself. 
Now, what did you immediately think of? What other work of literature did you think of when I talked about looking at yourself and not being able to handle it? Well, you thought of Oscar Wilde's picture of Dorian Gray, because this young, foppish, selfish, narcissistic man is a real conniving sort of Mr. Hyde, in fact, but he's able somehow to transfer all his own failures and paralyses and actions that are dark onto a portrait that is in the attic that no one ever sees. And so all the scars of his life and the hurts of his life and the active culpabilities of his life are mystically transferred to a picture of himself on the top floor and he never grows old, remember? You, you remember the Angela Lansbury version. I remember the Dan Curtis version, but whatever it is, who's Dan Curtis? You, uh, you see the picture of Dorian Gray and at the end, through a crisis brought about by something that comes out, he dashes upstairs to the attic and he finally sees his true self in the picture of Dorian Gray. And he faints with a heart attack and dies on the spot. Now you may think, well, that's awfully dramatic. But I'm trying to get you to think about things about your life that seem to be unquenchably, um, unstoppably defeating, if only when you think about them. Now you may not think about them most of the time, which is what most people do, but every so often something happens that brings back something about yourself and the cheaters go on and it's a terrible moment. People have these moments, in fact, when they're dying, I can assure you of that, but they sometimes have them at other moments. Now I want to contrast Dorian Gray, which is an extreme but true example, and the cheaters, which is an extreme but true example, with two other things, and then finish. Did you know that George Eliot's first novel was called Janet's Repentance? We think of her as this astonishing literary prodigy, right? The great novelist of the mid-19th uh, century. And when she was very young, in 1857, she published a novelette called Janet's Repentance. And it's her first, and it's very pro-Christian, unlike most of her later writings, which are skeptical. It's extremely pro-Christian. And in this story, a story with which I identify, but it was written in 1857, a young man at Cambridge University, a heedless 17-year-old, starts a kind of carrying on with the daughter of the publican. He doesn't really think about it. He comes from a completely different social class than she, and, and he likes her, but doesn't really think about the implications, and the inevitable happens. Years later, she sort of disappears from her, his life and from Cambridge in total ostracism and disgrace. Five years later, when he's now about 22 and a half, he's walking down the street in London and he sees something happening on the street. A little group of people have gathered in great concern over something that's in the street. It turns out it's a body of a dead woman. And he looks at her and he realizes who it is. It is the woman with whom he had a brief, heedless affair in college. And she has become a woman of the streets, as would happen in that era, and has been murdered 
and she, her dead body is lying in the street. And George Eliot has him so overcome with absolute piercing cheaters, he sees what his heedless action did to her, that he goes ballistic, goes completely down the hill, but he happens to be exposed almost at the same time to a sermon. And in the sermon, he is assured of the forgiveness of God for the most outrageous personal conduct. He's, here is a sermon by a Church of England clergyman who just named Charles Simeon, as it turns out, who blows his mind and he goes into the ministry. And this young man's entire fruitful, pastoral, loving, totally self-giving ministry turns out to be the absolute transformation of a small village where he is humbly assigned to be the rector. Read it. It's about looking at the mirror and yet hearing the word miraculously that it is possible to be forgiven while seeing the truth about yourself and to start anew. Now, do, do you, do you identify at all with this? I mean, you probably don't. Uh, I, I'm whistling in the wind, but I identify with it intimately because there are defeating situations, often from another era in your life, defeating memories that are, as it were, um, you just don't think about them. But every so often they're there and you long to look in the mirror and walk away free, like Edgar Tryon, a young man in Janet's repentance. But often that's not what happens. They're just one more nail in the coffin of regret and long-term defeat, at least in one area. This is simply the way it is. I'll tell you one more story and then I'm done. Um, years ago, I was walking across the courtyard of Widener Library. Uh, right in front of Widener Library in Cambridge. And um, I was, at the time, uh, loosely affiliated with Harvard Law School. And as I was walking along, carrying my books, I happened to see another person who was coming down the opposite way, and I realized that it was too late to turn aside. <laughs> Have you ever been in a situation like that? You know, you, it's too late to turn aside? Otherwise, I would have ducked in. And it was a person for whom I had very strong negative feelings. Um, there's a song by the Guess Who from 1981 that goes like this. Because if you've been doing me bad, you sure been hiding it good. <laughs> and uh, that was the word that came to me as I saw this particular person with whom I had had a certain kind of attachment. And uh, I had been done bad, it was commonly known. And I was very, very hurt and most distressed. And uh, as I got to the place of unavoidable seeing this person and she me, I was so overcome with negative feelings, hurt, distress, anger, rejection, just, I mean, it was like a thermonuclear. I mean, it was a thermonuclear emotional thing, but of course being constrained, you know, I sort of said, oh hi, <laughs> and the person said, oh hi, and on we went. But what was really going on was a thermonuclear 
inner paroxysm of convulsed feeling. Now what happened to me then, and this actually, the voice happened, it said, how can you possibly feel so badly? How could anybody feel that upset? I mean, what has come over you? you you've never been that upset about anything. It was like that Hitchcock, the God's eye view, you know, when in Alfred Hitchcock, the camera pulls away and, and you see what's going on from God's angle. And all of a sudden I saw it, you might say, from another view. And it's, Paul, this is unbelievable that you should feel so strongly. And in actual fact, that began a kind of a, a, kind of a chain reaction which led to a radical Christian conversion and the ministry. John Zoll would not be here, for what it's worth. Uh, uh, had, had, had that, this is true, had that encounter on the Widener Quad not happened, I know the date, you'd have a different rector. Well, the, the, the power of that is simply to say that as soon as I sort of saw this, this enormous paroxysm of feeling, just as Janet's repentance guy had had, I, in God, as opposed to just me, it turned from defeat into a bigger canvas. It's like the thing that happened in your life or the thing that you were part of that you distresses you to think about. It just distresses you. How could I ever have married him? I mean, how could it ever have happened? But I did. Uh, how did... If, if you didn't see it in light of the mercy of a long-term pattern of a bigger plan, you would be a defeated person and a person in huge flight from that aspect of your life. But as it is, I became at that point a man who observes his natural face in a mirror, but he looks into the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer that forgets, but a doer that acts. And the funny part of it is, I got on a train the next day to go to Princeton. Uh, and I was on that train at Princeton Junction that you take, you know, and the overwhelming thought came after this thermonuclear internal explosion. Write that person. Don't say I hate you, but write something to the effect of this is too big. We have to talk. There has to be some kind of a step forward. And to one's complete surprise, I wrote it and I got an answer. And the answer was more pacific and more concessive and more downright dear than I could possibly have imagined. And from that came a healing and it was completely resolved. Now just think about yourself, whether there might be a situation that is sufficient to arouse within you extremely um, hot, negative feelings. And what it would be like to see it, and it doesn't come naturally, in the big picture of God's providence and God's mercy. And then you might in fact be able to walk away from the bad dream and do something about it. It is possible to reconcile with individuals. Dear God, where we are defeated, give us grounds for hope. 
and where we are paralyzed, give us the muscles by your grace to move. And where we are in prison, free us to love anew. For Jesus Christ's sake, amen.